Welcome to the Sandbox. Welcome to this bonus episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. We're going to get into some of the questions that we asked Drew after his presentation. Questions that came from the in-house audience as well as the online audience. Enjoy. Thank you so much, Drew, for, yeah. for your presentation. <clears throat> Again, <clears throat> wow. <laughs> and you were the one doing all the talking. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we, you know, we'd love to hear uh, just questions that come up from the studio audience. If you're, if you're interested in, 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 in having a question, uh, feel free to raise your hand. We'll, we'll, we'll get to you as soon as we can. Uh, as Chris said, online, talk amongst your, uh, yourselves and ha ha have conversations in the comments. Uh, but also raise questions and we'll get to those and be able to ask Drew in-house as, as we go. Um, part of this dialogue is, is really about respect and how we respect, it requires some respect and some trust of each other. And sometimes the language we choose is, uh, even well-intentioned, may not be quite right, but with a little bit of grace and, and, um, and trust in each other, we're going to do our very best and we might just learn something while we're at it. So with all of that said, Drew, as you were talking, and, and as I read your book as well, um, it got me thinking about where we've been this week. And I want to just talk about a couple things that took place this week, I and mean, not, not in the last month or even the last year. This last week, uh, the cops and the Elton Sterling killing in Baton Rouge, uh, we found out that they wouldn't be charged. Locally, our St. Olaf College, uh, there was, um, it was, they shut down because of racist messages that were sent uh, to black students. President of the United States uh, was wondering why the Civil War happened. Um, Adam Jones, outfielder for the Orioles, uh, was uh, getting ra racist taunts from the fans in, in Boston. So I'm really glad that we live in a post-racial America. Um, <laughs> But it's all to your point, right, that no matter what race or identity you land in, it's in relationship to white supremacy. And I was just wondering if you'd say more about that. Yeah, I mean, and, and I, I think it's helpful even to just to piggyback off of those examples. Like, those are the things that kind of help wake us up to, like, what's going on. But, like, race and racism are still happening even outside of, like, these terrible moments, right? in the mundane everyday lives and decisions and choices that we make, racism is at play. So it's not even just these horrible things that sicken us or sometimes get our attention, but it's, it's actually our everyday boring lives that racism is still happening. And I think for us to even see that is important. But yeah, it is under this umbrella of white supremacy, right? And sometimes that's a scary word. Um, so sometimes, um, you know, we hear that and we think neo-Nazis and KKK and all these bad people, right? The alt-right or whatever that means, right? That that's what white supremacy is all about. Uh, but white supremacy is really all it is, is when I talk about racial hierarchy, it's, that's what we're talking about. That's white supremacy, right? It's this hierarchy, this laddering that distorts our vision and shapes all of our everyday interactions, right? In ways that sometimes is obvious, things that, you know, these incidents that happen, and other times in ways that we're not aware of because we're so socialized by the society that's shaped by, again, 400 years of white supremacy, we're so shaped by it that we don't realize how strange and awkward some of our lives are, right? Um, we don't realize that there's just something terribly wrong about our everyday ways of being and living and relating to one another in the world. 
And so until we can kind of see that that is this big umbrella that shapes our lives and patterns, our decisions, um, whether we're aware of it or not, um, we're not really going to begin to solve, um, really get to the root of racism. It's, um, but that was just, you know, just as a learning that, you know, whether you, yeah, no matter where you're shaped by white supremacy is, is anybody from any other, any other background. Right, we're yeah. all internalizing we're all, we're all it. Because in yeah. we're, and that's yeah. the thing, like, it's actually, the point is that we're all human beings, right? And so we, because we live in a society that's been organized and shaped and influenced by, by white supremacy for so long, like, we're all, hu we're all susceptible to internalizing it. Um, none of us are outside of that. And so it may come out in different ways. And certainly certain communities have been much more aware of that problem and have tried to create traditions and customs to resist it. Sure. But nonetheless, we're all human beings and susceptible to, to internalizing it. Yeah, yeah. You know, as we get s started here, and I know that there's going to be lots of questions, um, just you talk in different venues and different places around the country. I think you were out in Denver recently, mm -hmm. I saw. And, and, um, but what is one question that when you present, people always seem to ask? And what is a question that they don't ask, but you wish that they would? Hmm, question that is always asked. That's a... Um, like you can see it coming a mile away and it's just, it's gonna be asked. Um. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a, a bunch of them. <laughs> it's hard to narrow down which one. There's like a range of questions. I mean, so this might sound, uh, we're live, aren't we? I'm gonna say it anyway. But, it's <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, uh, so I'll, I'll speak broadly, then maybe I'll think of a good specific one. But like broadly, like oftentimes, um, when I have experienced many white people get defensive to what I've been saying, and they have like a retort, okay. usually it's something that I've heard a lot, right? And so it's not necessarily like, like they think it's like, a, it's almost like the, you know, you know, stop playing the race card, right? Or race baiters and all this kind of language that's kind of created and that in many ways it's, it's um, set up to kind of, um, scapegoat and ostracize the person that's pointing out racism, right? That they're the ones causing all the trouble, right? Kind of like Martin Luther King when he shows up in Birmingham, right? You're, they called him an outside agitator, literally, um, and said, you know, our Negroes were just fine until you showed up and started stirring up all this trouble, right? Um, and so I think that that can be very frustrating. But, but more specifically, um, in terms of recently, I think that an example, um, you know, you know, when people talk about um, the anti-black violence that's going on in our society today, almost always you will either hear, what about the black on black violence? Or you'll hear, all lives matter, right? <laughs> One of the two <coughs> um, as re retorts, and both of them are frustrating, right? Um, the black on black violence is frustrating because Number one, it's a, it's a distraction from the conversation, right, obviously. Um, but num number, two, I mean, number one, I mean, in b most black communities, even if there is a higher level of violence, those are things that are being responded to in their communities, right? I mean, I know in my community in Harrisburg, we got people who doing all kinds of campaigns around gun violence and all that stuff. Um, and so to think that black people aren't aware of 
challenges in their own communities is, sil is silly. But on the other hand, like it's not the same thing as state violence, state sanctioned violence. Um, and, the, uh, and the permissibility of that in communities is a whole nother level of issues that needs to be responded to. Um, and the reality is that even further than that is that most uh, in our country is racialized. So the majority of white crime is against white people, right? Um, it's that uh, most of our crime is racialized because we live in racially segregated communities, right? And so even just acknowledging that basic reality is sometimes ignored. Why is there so much black on black crime? Because our society was controlled and dominated by white people, organized society in such a way in which black people were concentrated into these communities and not given access. That's why there's black and black crime, right? And so I think like those kind of things are, are frustrating to hear people say those things without, with, and I think that it doesn't seem like they're genuinely caring about black life. It's just to try to retort, to try to shut down the conversation. Same thing with all lives matter. Of course, all lives matter. Everybody, that's not the issue, is not whether all lives matter or not. Um, the issue is that black people are disproportionately being killed, which shows that in this country, black lives are not mattering, which means that all lives are not mattering, right? And so it's a distraction again, away from the actual concern. It's like, you know, I think I heard somebody say once, you know, if, if, if your wife asks you, you know, do you, do you, do you love me? You're not gonna say, I love all God's creatures, right? No, that's, <laughs> that's not an acceptable answer, right? You might, you might not be allowed back in the house afterwards. Um, and so we have to separate the universal from the particular. Uh, and sometimes if we, can't, if we can't affirm the particular, then we're demonstrating that the universal principle has no bearing. It's very easy to make universal statements, right? Even, now this is not a true universal statement, but um, all men are created equal, right? Now, there's some patriarchy there already, but, but all men are created equal, right? This idea, meanwhile, Jefferson, who wrote that, has got slaves, right? Um, and so you can live in that contradiction of just this umbrella of a universal statement, but until it gets manifested and fleshed out in the particular, it really means nothing. Mm -hmm. There's a question online, I'm seeing. Yeah, so actually, I think it might lead well out of kind of what you were just getting at, but um, I think language is really important in the way we talk about this because I think it's it's too easy to have our political talking points and not actually get to any meat of conversation. So, um, how can changing the way that we or changing the language that we use help? And what language have you found maybe to be helpful in actually being able to break down barriers to have good conversation and actually get somewhere? Yeah, yeah. No, I think language is huge, and I think be <coughs> because I'm aware of like the way that. Um, people respond to particular words. Sometimes I'll just use different words, at least to start, right? So like, I'll use examples. So we started off with racial hierarchy, and then we were talking about white supremacy, and I connected and said that it's the same thing, right? I joke sometimes, I say like, I use racialized for all kinds of things. It means exact same. So if I say that was racialized, that's like saying, almost like saying it was racist, right? But if I say that was racist, people will get very defensive. Um, I can say the exact same thing. It means the exact same thing, right? Um, but the word itself is not as, for white communities, they're socialized to respond very defensively, I think, around the word racist. Um, and so, so that can kind of just end conversation. And so you can't even begin to explain what you mean when you say that, because it's already shut down. And so I think word choice can um, at least open up opportunities for having conversations. Um, but I do think that it's also important for 
you know, my challenge would be is that for those who participate in white dominant culture to also take ownership for how you respond to these conversations. Because it's not on everybody. Everybody can't be sitting around all day thinking of new ways to phrase things so that you don't get offended, right? And so I think people also like, um, so sociologists and society, which is a language to describe how, because many white people are social in a way that they don't talk about race and racism very often in their societies, <coughs> in their communities, in their families, um, the defensiveness comes really quick, shut down, emotional, disengage, right? And, and so my challenge is always, that you got to take ownership for how you're responding in these conversations, right? Yes, it's great for us, for any of us who are engaging in these conversations to use different terms to try to open up conversation, but ultimately people have to take ownership of how they're going to respond. Not that it, you can, you still might get uncomfortable, but you can decide that you're going to stay in the conversation, right? That's really all that we need from people is that everyone's committed to staying in the conversation, open dialogue. That means back and forth, two ways, um, conversation and dialogue. Staying engaged. Staying, staying engaged. engaged. Right. Sir, uh, did I see a uh, hand raised over here? Yeah, we have a couple of them. Uh, do we have the microphone? I've raised a couple children in Rochester, and our, our schools are, by and large, rather diverse, and, and many of our large corporations and companies are, but what advice do you have for churches? Because our churches, by and large, are not very diverse, and we don't even know how to begin to approach that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, our churches. Um, <laughs> Well, let me, let me start by this, saying this. The first question, so often our first question is, how do we become more diverse? And maybe that's not even the, the right starting point, right? Um, maybe the question for us ought to be is, how do we take ownership over, one, the church's history um, in terms of, like, we're just not honest. Like, the church played a central role in theologizing and making biblical arguments for, for Manifest Destiny, for slavery, for Jim Crow, like all hard intellectual work. Presidents of colleges were hard at work writing arguments, theological arguments in support of a white supremacist society, right? And so we need to take ownership over the distortions to Christianity itself that went along, that happened in this land, right? I mean, I like uh, Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass. They both, those, you know, Frederick Douglass says there is true Christianity and Christianity of this land, right? And to, be, to love the one is to be an enemy of the other. That's what he says, right? Well, I think we have to acknowledge that Christianity has been manipulated and used to endorse all kinds of stuff and kind of work through our own stuff. Because I think we've kind of dealt with the surface stuff, but we haven't asked it. We, we think why Jesus is not really a problem. And at most, at most, even if we do think it's a problem, it's a visual problem but not a theological problem of how we understand Jesus as identifying with people in the world, those who are most vulnerable, right? What happens when a poor Jew living under Roman occupation begins to identify and represent those in dominance, right? That's a theological problem. It's not just a visual problem, right? And so I think that there's some real deep questions, that's just to begin with, um, that I think needs to be explored. Um, and I think then, you know, I think churches have great opportunities <coughs> to explore their story and the story of the communities that they participate in, right? 
what's the story of that land and space in which the church inhabits, right? I, I like to go all the way back. Whose land was it originally? Like, who were the original indigenous communities that lived there? Where did they get displaced, right? Um, tell that story. What going for, you know, who was allowed, who was welcomed into that space, right? Different states and regions were welcoming some people into some regions and not welcoming other folks, right? So what was going on? Even locally, you know, sundown towns and, 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 and um, all kinds of stuff were going on. And so what's that story of that space that the church inhabits? Because if it can't tell that story, how's it going to live faithfully into something new, right? We gotta know where we've come from if we're gonna live into something more faithful moving forward. And so I think that there's great opportunity for the church um, to tell an alternative story, right? A story f that comes from below, from the voices of those that have suffered most in our society or have been excluded and ignored. <coughs> um, and I think that if we begin to do that, I think it will become more and more obvious how we ought to move forward, right? And it, it's not gonna be the same thing. It's not gonna be a one size fits all for all churches. Um, but, but, but in light of that history, I think it can give us some real serious roadmaps. That means churches need to be doing some real historical work um, in terms of understanding both historical memory, but also just the region. What, where are we situated what's that story? And being honest about it, but then also um, collectively, right? Um, like sometimes I'll say, you know, an all-white church, even in an all-white neighborhood, you know, some people are like, well, what do we do? We're all white. I'm like, you're at the center of the action. That's it. That's, that's, that's where real work needs to be happening. You don't need to be in a racially diverse community to start uh, challenging and confronting and, and, and paying attention to white supremacy and how it shapes one's own life, right? Um, and so I think that those are good starting points. Even before we um, make the, <coughs> it's too quick, like we can um, jump to being a racially diverse community and still ignore some of those deeper questions um, that, that really have a lot to do with the faithfulness of how we live in society as the church. Thank you. Uh, there's an online question. Yeah, so actually it's uh, just a comment that I think is, is really powerful, and so I'm just going to see kind of how you might react to it and what you might have to say about it. But um, a guy named Steve says, when I was an inner city pastor in Kansas City, I heard some Southern Baptist denominational executives excitedly tell us about their plan to penetrate our neighborhood with the gospel. After shaking with anger, I bore my witness that the gospel had been in our neighborhood long before I had arrived. Yeah, I mean, that goes along with my story about the invasion, right, Harrisburg invasion. Um, but when you, when you see yourself, I mean, so whiteness, as much as it's a sociological category, it's a theological category too. It has deep, I mean, you go back to its development. White supremacy develops out of Western Christendom, right? And if we can't acknowledge that, that then we miss the theological implications. So some people imagine themselves with sometimes with good intentions, but imagine themselves to be closer to God and to be bringing God with them wherever they go, right? And for other people to be godless, to be lacking, right? To, uh, we talk the dark continents, right? That language, there's a way of perceiving other communities as some being more pathological and sinful and others being um, the kind of standard, the divine standard from which everybody else ought to assimilate and live into. And so when we imagine our communities like that, then it's not gonna be surprising that 
people are going to imagine themselves as penetrating these evil, dark spaces um, rather than being able to see that God has been at work. And maybe, could it just be that, that Paul was right, that God has chosen uh, nothing to shame those who, who see themselves as something, right? That, that it's the wisdom of Christ crucified that shows that God has always been most at work, most powerfully at work among those who are most vulnerable um, and marginalized and oppressed in our society. I think I saw a question in the second row. Oh, you got the mic, mic already. Good. Uh, I'm a Sudanese American, mm -hmm. and for me, race issues has been very great, race issues in America, because of my historical trauma. Mm -hmm. I left Sudan when things were very ugly for me, to the point my religious leader was executed in public. Mm. So we had to leave the country. When we left to the United Arab Emirates, also we faced like a different kind of racism. So when we came to America, we felt relieved. <coughs> and my experience in America was in Iowa City, in Iowa, where I worked in the same institution for so many years. And all my, my supervisors were Caucasian, and many of my coworkers were Caucasian. And I didn't know a lot about uh, race issues. When my kids and myself uh, discussed issues, I felt like my kids were so bitter many times, and I was so surprised. Yeah. And I started to learn about the race issues. So I, I know there is chronic issues need to be fixed, but I'm not sure where is the most work need to uh, focus where, like for Caucasians who are really want to see changes and for African Americans who are like scholars and activists, where is the most work need to be done, like amendment to, to the constitution or like uh, public uh, policies, or social work, where is the most work need to be done? I just want to be like, yes, to all of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough. I mean, that's, that's a huge question. Um, and I'll just, let me add, so my mom is from Jamaica. So my dad's from Philly, my mom is from Jamaica. She moved when she was 19. And I remember um, her coming up sometimes saying that she didn't fully understand American racism, at least early on. Now if you ask her, she wouldn't say it anymore. And I think it was seeing her own kids' experiences, right? The challenges that we face, I think, clarified for her. Because growing up in Jamaica, sometimes, you know, I think that um, sometimes people can cling to people, black folk from other countries, and that, would, that everyone's coming from different contexts, right? And so, while there's always some kind of form of social dominance happening, it's not necessarily the exact same as what's happening here, right? And so, people need to begin to understand, you know, the dynamics that are local here. But to your question, you know, where, where's the work? I mean, I mean, it, it, it's, it, 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 because it shapes all areas of our lives, I really do mean yes, right? That, that all of <coughs> intellectual work needs to be confronted, cultural, the cu cultural productions, um, uh, and yeah, um, public. Uh, but for me, I mean, I guess my, my thing is, is, is the church, right? That, that we, the church ought to be a place where 
not only are we able to talk about race and racism, but that we ought to be a part of the solution and transformation in society, right? That's what I really keep thinking about. I think that the work is much broader than just the church needing to do that work. Um, and I think that the church can do it in a whole variety of ways. I, um, I got the opportunity to spend some time with Brian Stevenson, um, who does, um, he's with the Equal Justice Initiative in Alabama, Montgomery, Alabama. He does death penalty, uh, mass incarceration, whole variety of stuff. One of the things I was amazed, because, you know, going down, I think, like, oh, there's a bunch of lawyers, right? So let me see some of the ca cases that they're going doing. I got there, and um, I was amazed that they didn't stay in their lane, right? Um, they, they were creating this museum on the third floor to tell the story from slavery up to the present day. They had this wall where they had literally um, collected um, the dirt from all the lynching sites that have been recorded in Alabama. It was just filled up the whole entire wall. You can see all the different colors and has the names of the people. Um, documentaries, all, all just all kinds of stuff. Um, and and they, he kept saying, we're trying to change the story, right? Um, and so the narrative, trying to change the narrative, right? Helping people, because I think we're, people are socialized in a way of thinking about America that's dishonest, right? That doesn't take an, into account that the majority of our country has been um, slavery and genocide of Native Americans, right? Like, like that's the majority of our time, right? 400 years, 1619 to the present, 250 years of that is slavery, right? Um, it, it doesn't take into account the stealing of the lands from Mexico, right? From Mexicans, which is all kinds of irony with the kind of conversations we have today. It doesn't take into ca consideration, you know, Japanese internment camps and just the widespread white supremacy that shapes so many different people in our country. And so um, I think that we do need to refuse to stay in our lane, kind of like that's kind of my takeaway from Brian Stevenson is and to just think broadly, dream big, and, and dare to just each of us to do our part to kind of respond and resist um, these forces that are working in our society that are, in many ways, it dehumanizes all of us, right? None of us um, are, off, are better off uh, with a world like this. All of us are more human and can do life toge together more genuinely when we dismantle and disrupt white supremacy. The side of the room has just been so quiet. <laughs> we have one over here. Um, so as I've been doing uh, reading and research on racism in America, one of the things that has struck me is um, the lack of kind of that cultural memory that you've talked about that white Americans don't have. Um, that is so present in the lives of people of color. And I think you started to speak to this a little bit um, in one of your responses, but have you found ways to kind of create that for white people <laughs> to educate them on um, <coughs> what that is and then our part in that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's probably a few different ways to go at that, but um, let's see. I mean, one of it is just simply being honest intergenerationally. Right, I think intergeneration. I feel it seems like every generation, mostly, right? Not every single white family, but most white families seems like start from scratch, right? Where they they know nothing of the racial challenges and issues that come before them, nonetheless 
several generations. And so there's a lack of honesty and conversation around those racial realities intergenerationally. And so it's that people want to protect their children from the world, but really, if anything, it's just giving them over to the socializing patterns of the society. Like that's not, um, you know, and so I think thinking like what kind of, what kind of children do you want to have, right? Ones that are sensitive and aware of the history and then can respond and are more likely then to be able to resist these socializing patterns or to just let them go along by the socializing patterns of our society. Um, so that's one thing is just the intergenerational conversation that needs to happen. Um, but I think that, you know, I think, and this, I would say this to any dominant group in the world. So this is not just about white people, right? I think that it's very easy for any dominant group to kind of live into its own narratives, how it likes to spin its own story, right? And so I think that in any dominant group, and in this case for white people, there needs to be particular intentionality in hearing the stories of those who've been vulnerable and, and oppressed in society. Who are those historically oppressed communities and how do we reach out and intentionally allow those stories to shape our story, right? And retell our story in light of those stories. Um, and so, I mean, on a, I mean, some of this just is education. I mean, so like my kids, you know, they, 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 they know that slavery happened and they know about Jim Crow and reread children's stories, st stuff that's geared towards their age, right? But that, that helps them understand what has gone on in the world. And I think that that's not something that's just a choice that black families or people of color in general should be making. It's something that all families, right? That we, anybody that lives in this country, that this is a part of our story now. Um, and how do we make sense of those things? And so the intentionally introducing that literature and those stories. Um, and then there's just so many opportunities for, I mean, the museums and stuff that exists, right? They're all, there's, it's not, it's not because there's a lack of resources. Um, it's just that people are not valuing those things for themselves and their families and their communities. And so I think really valuing and saying that this is important. We're gonna make this a priority, right? We're gonna get to DC and see this new African-American museum, right? Because this is important for us to understand our place in society. We need to also, um, reframe and retell our own narratives um, in light of those, those stories that are being suppressed. I can't believe the way the time has gone. I want to ask one, I, I have one last question I want to ask, but I want to go last. <laughs> so I don't know if there's anything online or in house. Um, it looks like yeah, I think we've got one over here. So um, I think there are a lot of different conversations in our society um, where we're maybe missing how the dominant culture has kind of set up a framework, um, whether it's socioeconomics or whether it's sexual identity or any number of places where we've kind of said this is the norm, right? Um, should those conversations sort of find each other as we have that conversation or do those need to be separated and what's the best way to handle um, maybe the similarities or differences in some of those challenges that we face? Yeah, <coughs> yeah, I don't think we can, we can't keep them completely separate and think that we're, like if they always remain separate, we're, we're kind of not getting to the heart of the root of the issue, right? At some point, um, you've got to see how these things overlap and intertwine and feed into each other. 
Um, that's why, like, I can't talk about white supremacy and not talk about patriarchy, right? I mean, there's times where I might focus on one or the other, but at some point I got to be able to deal with both and how those things overlap in really significant ways and how they're complicated, right? Um, in that kind of intertwining. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that, so s I know some folks, and I probably would disagree with them, who say like, at, you always have to, always have to be dealing with the overlaps. I don't know if that's always possible or realistic because we're all on journeys. But I think as a part of that, it has to become a part of that conversation and it has to expand broader. As our frameworks are broadened, we have to then expand beyond that as well. Um, but it's not, we're not dealing with people's lived, real lived experiences if we're only dealing with one thing, right? Because nobody is just one dimensional, right? We all have many facets to us and many different identities and experiences. And, um, and if we're gonna be true to ourselves, I mean, you think about your own story, right? It's complicated, it's a whole bunch of stuff, right? And so the more that we can begin to tell us, so that's why one thing I tell people like, you know, I'm, I'm a black man in America, but I also got a PhD now, right? So I, I, I live with that tension, right? I know I can hop out in the car and nobody will see that PG, but I also have access in different, at different times and I've got to deal with all of that and think about what that means, right? Because education provides access that other things don't, right? And so our lives are complicated. I know my experience is much different than my brother's experience, right? Um, the way that I can live and move in, a, in society, the opportunities that I have are not the same as my brother's. Um, and so, um, being honest and dealing with those complexities are important. Yeah. We have questions all over the place, but we do have a, a, a time, time frame. So I, I'm going to encourage if you're in-house, make sure to connect with, with Drew afterwards. You'll be around for a little while, and, uh, but we have to kind of wrap, wrap it up with, uh, with one last question. And it's a question that kind of was raised for me as I uh, it's toward the end of the book, you wrote something that um, is beautiful, uh, a beautiful sentence. I want to quote you to yourself. You said, uh, I have been persuaded that the church's power is, is different from, the, from our society's power, and it is released by God at the axis of human vulnerability. It's released by God at the axis of human vulnerability. So I just want to ask, when have you seen this power un unleashed and, and where have you seen transformation taking place? <coughs> well, I mean, so I guess it would be important to just say, to start out, like, we imagine that, you know, the world moves from, you know, those who, who are in power, right? So especially in our society because we have a, a democracy, you know, those who are elected in power or those who are the CEOs and those who are wealthy and in government positions, that's what, you know, that's how people tell history, right? From, you know, Rome, we tell history by who is emperor, right? And so we kind of look up and think that that's where all the action is that we got to pay attention to. Um, but what we see both in the biblical narrative from the beginning all the way through the end um, is, is this idea that it's, you know, Gideon in the 300, right? It's David, it's, it's these enslaved Israelites that God is freeing, right? It's Jesus, a poor Jew living under Roman occupation, right? Um, it's these stories of vulnerability in, in um, those who are oppressed and those who are discounted and um, denied and rejected in society <coughs> that God is actually um, working through. And so in our society, I'd say the same thing, right? That when we've seen great 
transformation in American society. It's not been so much done to the to the those at the top that we miss that on the ground it was actually um, these movements from from below, right? Not top down power, but bottom up grassroots um, people, particularly marginalized people, who've been leading us into transforming our society in really meaningful ways. Um, certainly, I mean, I think. Um, civil rights movement is a great example of that, right? Um, it's not just Martin Luther King, who in many ways, he's, he's picked a, as a part of a movement that's already happening, right? He's just the face of this movement of people on the ground um, who, who dreamed th that, that another world was possible, right? Um, feel, uh, you see those churches filled with women, right? Who are f uh, showing up and who believe and praying and marching and walking. Um, you have SNCC college students, right, showing up in masses. You got Birmingham's children, right, that shut down the whole entire city, right? And so um, there's ways in which God has, even in our own society, <coughs> we've gotten to see the ways that people um, are kind of being pulled from the corners, cracks, and edges of society. I think same thing with the Black Lives Matter movement today. You see that happening. And, um, and I think it's a testament to that God is at work and that God doesn't necessarily work the way that we think things should work um, in terms of change, right? The change isn't, the real significant transformational change isn't top down, it's bottom up. And then sometimes it's the bottom up that puts pressure on the top to, to align with what is happening in that particular moment. Thank you so much, Drew. Yeah. Yeah, let's uh, thank Drew. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. We're so thankful to have this conversation with Drew, and we hope it moves us toward further conversation and connection with one another. To learn more about Drew, you can find him on Facebook, at Twitter via at Drew Hart, that's D-R-U-H-A-R-T, or visit his website, DrewGIHart.com. We'll see you next time. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox. <laughs> <laughs>